across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour on Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm Matt Bentman, here with Alan Alder to look at the food and drink news for Cambridge and South Cambridgeshire. Uh, today we visit the Radigund pub in King Street to find out about the long job of rebuilding a much-loved Cambridge institution. Sue Bailey, who is not able to be with us today, speaks with a winner of the recent Guild of Food Writers Awards. Dave Fox of Trumpington Allotments tells us some of the history of Cambridge's allotments. And we've plenty of news, and at the end of the programme, our job's listing. But first, there's a very interesting place opened in Green Street in Cambridge called The Swoop that sells foods and drinks made only by local producers. It's run by twin brothers Dan and Ben Ritzema, who own Crane Ciders, and it combines being a cafe cafe, a bar and tap room, a shop and a venue for tastings and classes. I spoke to Ben and Dan earlier in the week, starting with Ben, who described what the swoop is like. When you come in, you have the, the sort of the cafe shop area, uh, and on the right-hand side you have sort of where the, uh, the shop area is with all the, the shelving, and on the left-hand side when you come in, um, you have the seating area for the cafe and the bar, and then you go, we've got a little secret cellar downstairs where, you can, um, where we do all the tastings, we do all the classes, and then actually we've got a courtyard at the back where we're currently sat in, which is a really nice day today, um, but we've got a nice little hidden courtyard where you, know, you can enjoy drinks as well. This, this courtyard is astonishing. It's lovely, isn't it? It's it's, 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 it's hidden. It's you just <laughs> would not know it exists. Yeah. That's one of the great things about cities, these unexpected places. Yeah. Right, so you can come in here and it, you can just treat it like a cafe. And yeah. you, as you're sitting there drinking your cup of tea, you're thinking, God, this is nice tea. And it turns out you can buy it off your yeah. shelves and take that's it home right. and have it at home as well. Indeed, that's exactly But equally, helpful. downstairs in this secret bar, yeah. um, there are classes in exactly. which you can t- actually sort yeah, of learn yeah. about so, making yeah. cocktails. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's it. So that's, that's it. So you can come in, enjoy a coffee, and then realise actually I do fancy learning how to make cocktails today. <laughs> Book into the class, go downstairs at say seven o'clock in the evening, and then learn how to make three different amazing cocktails. From and then, and then, and then buy the bottles to take home to make them yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that sounds like good business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, so um, we started Crane Cider a while ago. We did events and we realised you can have bottles sitting on the shelf and, and sell very little. But if you can experience and you can offer the experience to consumers, they can find out more about the products. That's when they become loyal and they love it and everyone loves local. So, uh, and that's what we do at The Sweep. We have a mixture of events, um, which we have a cocktail masterclass, um, all local spirits, where you can learn how to make cocktails. We also have a cheese and drinks pairing. Um, again, local cheese from Perry Wakeman, who, what do you get? He got Affamir of the Year, so he um, yeah he's he's uh, a cheese expert and is recognised uh, in the country for that. And he helped us do the pairings, so he came in and said which drinks goes best with his, his cheeses. So yeah, we've got a, a true expert came in to help us with that. Uh, uh, and, uh, and the drinks are, are these drinks 
Oh, presumably, they're not all cider there. No, no, no. No, we, no, no, no. no there's, there's one. I think there's this one cider. So we got... Um, so the drinks... There's, there's three wines. Uh, two from uh, uh, Chilford Hall, which is 10, t- 10 miles on the road. So we've got their, their sparkling wine as well as their, one of their whites. And we've got Gifford Hall, which is near... Um, Barry St. Edmunds. And we've got their red. And then we've also got a, a local beer uh, to pair with one of the cheeses. Slightly different, but um, we trusted Perry. He's an expert, after all. And then the, the last pairing is actually the liqueur. So um, and he's 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 the one who's advised us and 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 actually I've sat in it and drank and chased them all and they taste amazing together. So <laughs> oh really? Yeah. So he, so he's he, got it. He's got it right. He has <laughs> got it right. Yeah. So that that's the that's so it's all about experience and yeah. and, and people get to learn more about the, the brands, the products. Well, they're all local and they can they can yeah experience everything in, in one of our classes. And, and you've got a beer you've got a beer class as well, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we've got five different beers. Five different beers. What from different brewers? Yeah, lo- yeah. Lo- lo- local, yeah, yeah Four, four, four different, four different. So we've got Wild Sky, which again Linton Way. Uh, we have Brew Board, which are uh, Halston, Brew Point, which are slightly close to Bedford, and then the last one is Patworth Brewery. Um, mm. So we've got selected it's, it's, it's all compliments and slightly different beers, so you get to experience a whole range of the beer offering, um, and that's sort of a half an hour, forty minutes experience. So. So you've got a sort of cafe area, so yeah. so that's not just alcoholic drinks then? No, no, no. So it, the whole point is we wanted to have the full round experience. So if, when people, someone come in any time of the day, they, they can experience local. So that we've got local coffee, so we've got hot, hot numbers um, <coughs> coffee in, which are all roasted in Meldrith. So they get experienced coffees locally, and then obviously all the alcoholic drinks, again, are all local, yeah. so people can sit in the cafe. Yeah, and we've got teas, there. we've got flapjacks, we've got cakes, uh, all, all from local. Oh. So the, the idea is, I know... We mentioned it when we set up cranes. We wanted to try and sell local and sell places, but we didn't really have anywhere that we could do that. So we wanted to sort of provide a place for us to sell ourselves, but also we wanted to help other local businesses to sell their products as well. So that's why we're all about showcasing local products and uh, having that full experience of local. One of the things I've been wondering is that when you were setting this up and you were, you know, establishing links with local providers to to give you the tea, the coffee, the what, what, what have you. Did it strike you that anything... That, I mean, I'm thinking about the sort of the keen entrepreneur who wants to enter the world of food and drink production, you know. Mm. Is there a gap in the market locally? Yeah, Is there well, you can't there, there's get? some things we did struggle with. Most things you, you, you're safe. But say, for example, at like the whiskey, the only thing you could get whiskey-wise in the vicinity was, was Norfolk. So we've had to source that from Norfolk. And then, for example, the crisps as well, they're out by uh, Colchester Way. But yeah, but most things are not too hard. But then some things are just you can't get them. So yeah. at the moment, Chris and, and whiskey. <laughs> well, looking at it from the other way, is there anything where there's um, probably too many producers? How, how on earth do they compete? How do they make? Yeah, there's, well, there's a lot of beer. There yes, is a lot there of beer. Is, you, so there, there's there's you, you you're probably looking at four maybe five different brands in Cambridge, yeah. um, fighting for space. But we've 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 tried to got a space for them all. So yeah, that that that's what one thing. Like wine, we're slightly worried because Chil- Chilford Hall is like one of the only ones that are really that close to us. There, mm. they're eleven miles away, and and when we went to go to the tasting, we were pleased they all tasted amazing. Because if they did, yeah. then we would have been well, stuck with them anyway. <laughs> there's also Gutter and Stars, of course. In yes, we, I think we do sell. We well, have we, done. We've inquired. We've all, we've tried to put an order in, but it hasn't come through yet. <laughs> well, they've. They, I mean, he sold, they out, sold out, out the first yeah, years, yeah. didn't he? The first years. Yeah, it's quite hard to get get his stuff. <laughs> yes. we, we tried. <laughs> right. the, the, yeah. The, 
the Gifford saw is really good. The Gifford wine, and, um, yeah, the, the red wine they've got is very good, yeah. Oh, I've not tried that. And the coffee from Uganda, there's a nice story there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah charity, yeah. So basically, um, yeah, basically it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a coffee that is, is purely charity, so we, we buy it in and, and, and sell it. Um, and they're she, based in Cambridge. Yeah, she, all, all the, essentially every profit she makes from it goes straight back to Uganda which is incredible yeah. so we always wanted to support that help, help, help the, yeah, the, the coffee producers out there yeah I don't know that I've ever had Ugandan coffee actually no we haven't <laughs> I don't drink coffee so <laughs> <laughs> that's why I haven't I would have drank it otherwise right. are you a tea man so no I'm not nothing no <laughs> right. no no, no. just just the hard man. stuff just yeah, yeah, yeah exactly just but Cattle Leaf Tea, that's, yeah. Yeah. that's Cambridge, isn't it? Yeah, that's local. Yeah, again, yeah. again it's, an, it's a couple that um, we got in touch with. and yeah, they, they, they sell they, really they, well. Yeah, they sell really well. They've got some really, really really good teas. People love it. You know, they can come in, they have a little teapot, and they can try different different flavours. Yeah. And we've got, I think there's like seven, maybe more than that. Seven, eight different flavours. Different flavours. Yeah. Oh, that's, 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 that's tremendous. OK, so... We haven't left many stones unturned at the moment. Great. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, good luck to you. I think it's a, gr- a, gr- a great idea. I hope it goes well. Thank, Thank you very much. much. And that was the Ritzema brothers in the hidden courtyard of the Swoop, which is almost opposite the Cambridge Gin Lab in Green Street. It's a great idea. Yeah, it is. And the Swoop is open every day except Mondays and Tuesdays. Noon till nine on Wednesdays and Thursdays, 10 till 10 on Fridays and Saturdays, and 11 till five on Sundays. And to book into a tasting, go to their website, theswoop.co.uk and click on events. Okay, on to our first news break now. And tomorrow, that's Sunday, it's the Cambridge Blue Moon's Summer Market. Now, this has South African food provided by shanty, craft beers, gins, and local craft stalls. It runs from 1 till 6 p.m. And on the 9th of July, the Blue Moon has an after-party for Cambridge Pride. That runs from 9 p.m. until 2 a.m., Tickets for that are £10 on the door or £6 in advance, and that is in Norfolk Street. Calverley's Brewery has produced a very interesting summer beer. It's called Berry Sour, and it contains strawberries, cherries, raspberries and hibiscus flowers, and it's an extraordinarily appealing red colour, and you can get it at their tap room now. Good. Brewboard has produced a new beer. It's called OTT. It's exclusive to Cam's Cuisine pubs and restaurants. This is described as a clear, crisp and refreshing session ale. And by the way, a Brewboard's taproom in Harston is closed this weekend due to circumstances beyond their control. So you'll have to go to a Cam's Cuisine venue to try it. Uh, some wine news. Cambridge Wine Merchants has a... Well, this isn't wine, actually. It's whiskey. Cambridge Wine Merchants has a whiskey tasting on the 6th of July in the King's Parade branch where you can try five compass box blended whiskies. It begins at 8pm and it costs £20 per person. At Amphora in Devonshire Road, there is a tasting of six vintage champagnes on the 6th of July. Now, only 15 tickets are available. The cost is £65. And on the 13th of July, there's what sounds to be a very interesting evening where you compare Bordeaux wines with Bordeaux-style wines from across the world, and they're matched on price, vintage and grape. The cost for that is £35. And on the 20th of July, there is a tasting of Portuguese wine, showcasing a range of styles from aromatic whites to full-bodied reds. That one is £30, and you can book any of these via the Amphora website. At the wine rooms in Hills Road, there's a new bar snacks menu, and also some new wines by the glass, including, from Lebanon, Chateau Moussard, the 2018 vintage. Very nice. 
Bookings for tables in August at Vanderlyle in Mill Road open next week, and they have some stunning new dishes on offer. Go have a look at their Instagram posts and feast your eyes. And bookings for tables in September at Restaurant 22 opened yesterday, and they also have some availability in July and August. And we've more news coming up shortly. Now details of free food available in and around Cambridge and the information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app, which exists so that people's or businesses' surplus food doesn't go to waste. That's right. And looking at the Olio app today shows us that Millie in Arbury has a jar of sealed coconut oil to give away. Marie in Great Shelford has some freshly picked and washed lettuce, garden mint, rosemary and thyme. All of these are 100% organic. There's just too much there to eat by herself, she says. Hannah on Arbury Road, close to the King's Hedges Junction, has boxes of teas, spices, protein powders, cereals and noodles. She's going to leave them outside her place and says simply help yourself. Meanwhile, Nick, also in Arbury, has tins of sliced carrots and tins of garden peas. And for serious lard fans, don't forget that Anna near Robinson College still has four packs of the stuff available. Quite what she was going to do with such a quantity of lard is anyone's guess. So I'm going to guess she was going to make authentic pastry for some homemade pasties or was going to swim the channel and thought against it. <laughs> anyway, that's a selection of what's currently available for free on the Olio app. <laughs> and another free app called Too Good To Go has unsold food from restaurants and shops, often at less than half price. And rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home, instead of it being binned at the end of the day's trading. OK, let's move on to our next feature. Ivan Seth is an Australian software engineer who changed career to start a beer distribution business called Jolly Good Beer in Caxton. At the Cambridge Beer Festival, he met a Texan called Steve Saldana. Steve runs Bear County Brewery, and he was actually on Flavour six years ago at the first Thirsty Fest in Glisson Road. We, we interviewed him, <laughs> yes, yeah. And now Steve, Ivan and Justin, Ivan's head of sales, clubbed together to lease a pub. Ivan saw the then-closed-down Radigan pub on King Street and he put in an offer. That was February 2020, just before the beginning of lockdown. How's that for good timing, eh? The headline at the time suggested that uh, Covid could last maybe two or three months and it could all be over by the summer. I met up with Ivan back then and again this week to see what's been going on. Here we are in the St Radigan pub, the new St Radigan yes, pub. Yes. So we're right on the end of King Street. It's an odd-shaped building. Okay. So we knew there used to be a big hotel on this corner. Yeah. It got knocked down, and then sometime after that, this got built. It looks like it's just been wedged in this space. Like yeah. There was a space, and someone's built a building to fit the space. Was there a tweet from you saying this was Cambridge's smallest pub, technically? Apparently, yes. I haven't verified that, but that was one of the things that always marketed itself on, the smallest pub in Cambridge. There are some other small pubs, like uh, the Live and Let Live, but I think floor space-wise, this probably has a little bit less than the Live. That's why we're trying to do our best to open up the space. There's like this website called the National Newspaper Archive, I think it is, and they've got a really good history of Cambridge newspapers scanned going back into the 1800s. Yeah. The main traceable thing is licensing changes were always in the newspaper. So anything to do with the licensee here on this whole corner, because the pub kind of changed around. It was originally the Garrick Head or the Garrick Inn. And then it kind of got chopped and changed and the license got moved from 
King Street to Jesus Lane and then back again. And eventually there was a change of name to the Radigant. I can't remember the date of that, but that was late 1800s when the name came along from the Garrick Head. Mm. But it was the original same licence, just sort of moving around this little bit of the block on the end here when there used to be this hotel here. When we originally saw the place, it was before March 2020, before, yes. before COVID was a word that people would have recognised. That's right, um, wasn't it? Did it become available about, like, say, two months before COVID? If you were following interesting news in that side of things... COVID was first being mentioned around December, I guess, 2019. Yeah. But mm. I saw the place December, I'd say, uh, around that kind of February, March period. Um, we were like, are we going to press on with this? And we did. We had several meetings more. and We, we didn't actually sign the lease till October 2020. Oh, so we already knew then we were into this thing. But yeah. we were obviously, it was an evolving thing. So we didn't know what COVID was going to be even then so we were, the, the government was telling us it's only going to be over by christmas we're talking christmas 2020 obviously it was not over by christmas 2020 mm. um, it wasn't over by christmas 2021 it isn't really over now so we committed to that in october 2020 thinking the world was going to be a different place than it was but unfortunately it was not so good an outcome so for our businesses, everything just was terrible. We were still, we were running through most of that period. I can't remember the exact dates, but most of my staff were still on furlough at that point. And we built up to more normal trading in November, 2021. And then Omicron came along and everything went downhill again, even though there were no lockdowns. The public reacted in such a way that the beer industry was really badly hit over Christmas and New Year, which is obviously normally a really good trading time. Mm. Um, so. Uh, that's that's sort of going on in the background while we're trying to work on this project. Just found a sign sitting on one of his boxes, saloon bar, in old brass, thick, heavy old brass. He must have saved that from uh, from the previous pub iteration. The last two years now of COVID have been interesting for our industry, and. Things are kind of recovering now, but we're still not there yet. We've still got a lot of customers who are reporting being down on 2019 volumes. Okay. Um, you know, some as much as six, uh, summer is as bad as only trading 60% of 2019 because some demographics of customers aren't going out as much, but also then there's economic factors right now as well with inflation gone pretty insane. So people are reeling in their spending. So that all has a knock-on effect throughout this whole industry, from the pubs to people like us, supply chain, through to the brewers as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's fairly unstable times. People aren't quite sure what's going to pay the bills next month. We've had these massive increases in, in electricity, especially pubs are really badly hit by that. Pubs use quite a lot of electricity, and especially yeah. these big old places, because their heating and cooling bills are ridiculous. Some of them have a 200% increase. They were paying, say, a grand a month. Now there's an extra grand a month they've got to come up with from somewhere whilst the general market is still a bit depressed. Yeah. So they need to increase prices. People I know go to pubs because you've got pints creeping up and up and up because everyone along that chain has to cover their new, their expanded bills. We're yeah. not selling more. So the only way to do that is with more margin. So the pubs are incrementing their GPs, supply chain is incrementing GPs, brewers are incrementing GPs, and it all adds up down the chain. So there's a lot of worry with that because obviously as these prices increase, and they must increase because there's no way to pay the bills without more margin, the customers might not buy the product anymore. 
because they're being pushed as well. So everyone's being squeezed. Uh, 11% RPI right now, I think it is, or thereabouts. So everyone's household budgets are effectively clawed back 11% unless they've been lucky enough to have a pay rise. And Mm. as is in the news a lot right now, pay rises are few and far between and there's powers like the Bank of England telling the people not to request pay rises and not to expect pay rises, which is a bit mean, but... Oh, they're afraid of the spiral effect, aren't they? Yes, but if you think about it, all of this rise so far is based entirely on non-wage increases. Say I increase my employees' wages by 11%. To me, that's about an extra £3,000 a month. From a GP perspective, that's about a 1% increase on GP, which is a very big difference to 11% inflation. So yes, wages will feed slightly back into inflation for us and for other sorts of businesses. And for us, our our wage bills are fairly high proportion of our overheads, so it will be a much smaller impact on people like primary producers and brewers. So as a percentage of overall price increases, an 11% wage increase will be less than a 1% product price increase. Yeah. So that's a little bit, you know, it might, it's different for services industries, I guess. So where everything is about selling the work of a person, mm-hmm. uh, that's gonna be a lot, potentially a lot more impacted on price. Um, But for for, for product industries, like the one I'm in, it's a lot less so. And most people are in manufacturing and products generally. So I think it's a little bit uh, unfair to suggest that people should take the hit. (laughs) But yes, so it's random economic digression. I think people should get the pay rises because then they could pay the beer, pay for the beer <laughs> and go to the pubs. And that's good for us. That's <laughs> good for the economy. There's other little bits just lying around here. Looks like he saved some bricks and there's a 129. That must be the number of this place. 129 King Street. Well, best of luck to you and everything that's going on here. I just think I'm conscious of the time that we should stop because you need to go get your van. Ah, oh, yes. I need to not get a parking ticket. Yeah. Yeah, but okay. okay. <laughs> Do you want me to hold the fort uh, whilst you get If your you don't van? mind, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm going to work at my hand. Still hanging on in there. <laughs> that was Ivan. He told me he's not sure when they're going to open, but they are making good progress with the renovations, and he said he's hoping for maybe a late summer or an autumn opening. For a long time, all work seemingly stopped, and I thought that was the end of it, but Ivan and his team, they're back in action, and they contacted us for a catch-up. Ivan regularly posts updates on Twitter as well, saying what stage they're at with the development of the new Radigand, and you can follow them at the Rad CB1, to see Cambridge's smallest pub coming back to life. Yeah, well, it'd be nice when it reopens. It will, yeah. Right, uh, more news now, Matt. Yeah, Cambridge Cheese Company in All Saints Passage has just got its purple garlic bulbs and plats in stock. They go quickly, so don't miss out. There's a new producer of salad and vegetable items grown without chemical inputs, and that can be found on Cambridge Market on Wednesdays. Sweet Pea Market Garden specialises in the best-tasting and most unusual varieties so their products will be full of interest not to mention flavour amongst the products they have at the moment are 
are pea shoots, edible flowers, fresh herbs, cherry tomatoes of various colours, a gretti or land samphire, and fireworks charred. They're at Cambridge Market from 10 till 4 on Wednesdays and also at St Ives Farmers Market today, 2nd of July, and again on the 16th of July. Trumpington Allotments off Foster Road in Trumpington has a 75th anniversary open day on the 9th of July. And here is Dave Fox with some details. We have lots of entertainments for children. We think think there's going to be lots of families. There's games, there's an allotment trail, there's a mini beast hunt. And on the allotment trail, we're going to label up various features around the site. Um, Scarecrows, the water butt polytunnel or something, and encourage people to go around and and, and tick them off and identify um, fruits and vegetables around the site. Uh, There's a colouring in book, actually. And as you can see on the front, we've uh, had a little bit of grant funding from Cambridge City Council for this sort of stuff, so thanks to them for for, for that. So, and for the gardening interest, we're going to do tours around the allotment, um, showing some of the interesting things we've got that you might might miss as a casual visitor. So we have an apiary, uh, a dedicated area for bees, and we have our chicken allotments that you don't normally get to see in there because they're obviously have to be fenced (laughs) off. Um, So there'll be uh, the um, experts from the society um, taking uh, guided tours around those uh, around those features uh, during the day. We also have the human fruit machine. This is my my contribution. Um, a game where it's well, it's a fruit machine basically, but with humans doing the uh, selection of the fruits and vegetables behind. So I'm hoping that's going to entertain people for <laughs> for a while. And um, and all the usual tombola refreshments. Uh, there's going to be a lovely display about the history of our allotment site put together by uh, Howard Slatter, who, as well as being one of our allotment members, is also helps to run the local history group. So he's done some great research from our, from our records. And also on display we're going to have the Tower of Flowers from the Trumpington Stitchers, which is a really excellent piece of, piece of work, which is going to be uh, up, on our, up on our gate on the south end of the site, and hopefully that will draw people in as well. And there'll be more from Dave Fox about Cambridge's allotment history and more news later in the programme. Our fellow flavour presenter Sue Bailey, who'll be back in the studio next time, has a website called Cambridge Foodies, and that's not to be confused with another one called Cambridge Foodie, run by Molly, a junior doctor. Sue also crops up on Channel 4, Radio 4, Radio Cambridgeshire and other blogs, and here's a timely example of something she's produced recently. I'm Stephen Gates. I'm a food science writer, a TV presenter and a gastronaut. This year, the Queen becomes the first British monarch to celebrate a platinum jubilee, marking 70 years on the throne. So today, we're going to look at the traditions and recipes of British royal celebrations of the past and ask why some dishes created specifically for royal occasions captured the public imagination while others didn't. Many recipes have a royal connection. And we're going to ask, just how central is food to a modern-day royal celebration? I'm joined by two food lovers who've looked at the power, politics and pleasures of these great royal feasts. Food writer Mary Gwynne, founding editor of BBC Vegetarian Good Food, cookbook author and organiser of Penshurst Farmer's Market. Hello there, Mary. Hello, hi. Great to have you. We've also got food historian and author Dr Sue Bailey, monthly food columnist for The Lady magazine, a regular food history commentator in national newspapers and a woman with a secret alter ego appearing at food fairs and history festivals as legendary TV chef Fanny Craddock. Now, there have been lots of specific competitions to make new dishes, marking royal occasions in the past. The, the obvious one really here to talk about is coronation chicken. Now, this was invented for the Queen's coronation in 1950. 
1953. Mary, can you tell us the story about how this came about? Yeah, this is a great story because I think most of us think two things. One, chicken, they must have picked it because everyone eats chicken. It was an everyday food. And secondly, it's what they would have had at the banquet. But both of those are wrong. Chicken at that time was a luxury. It was very expensive to feed a bird up for the table. Chickens were there for eggs. You didn't eat them or you ate them when their laying days were gone. So that was a luxury. It was in the middle of rationing, so again, a treat. But this was not served at the Buckingham Palace banquet. This was Constant Spry and Rosemary Hume of the Cordon Bleu School and Winkfield, who had to come up with a dish that would feed 350 overspill guests, the ones they couldn't fit into the palace. And they had the challenge of serving this meal for 350 people in Westminster Hall with no catering facilities, no space... Um, I mean, a huge challenge. Amateur star. But, but the challenge is, kind of, that, that makes the opportunity, doesn't it? Because you're squeezed in and you have to come up with an idea. This is genius. OK. Yeah, and it's wonderful. And actually, what is also... They, they wrote the recipe for the first time in the 1956, their, their classic cookbook. And they said they put a tiny bit of curry spice in, but they would hope that none of the guests would know because that would be much too off-putting to serve curry to such a, a mix of people. So you know, it, I, it's a brilliant dish. Uh, served cold, delicious, we still eat it. Fantastic. Using chicken, which is a treat. Yeah, and, and my, one of my daughter's favourite thing, coronation chicken, um, still. So when, Sue, when do we start seeing people beginning to follow royal fashions in their cooking? Is it Victorian times? No, I would say it was before then. Once recipe books began to become more popular, and before, if you like, in previous times, let's say in the 15th, 16th century, you know, cookery books were not available for the masses at all. But there was one lovely book that was called The Queen's Closet Opened by Sir Kenelm Digby, who was secretary to Queen Henrietta Maria. And she was the wife of Charles I. And this was in the 17th century. She was, in fact, almost sort of hailed as a 17th century domestic goddess. OK, she didn't write it, but it was written for her by Sir Kenelm Digby. And it had medicinal and food recipes and went into a vast number of editions. So that was one of, the, if you like, the sort of starts of the popularising of of recipes and particularly the sort of link with, with royalty. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, there are plenty more at foodmatterslive.com. For example, if you go to the site and search Ramadan, you'll find the episode where we ask if the UK food industry is missing an opportunity when it comes to the Islamic holy month. Follow to get every episode freshly delivered to you on Apple, Spotify, Google or your preferred podcasting platform. And thank you so much for listening. And that was a bit of uh, Sue Bailey, who isn't with us today, and we couldn't bear to be without her, so we've, <laughs> we put that in. Uh, and uh, you can hear more of that, of course. And I think one of the things, Matt, that's on the longer version of that was Victoria Sponge. Victoria Sponge, yes. Which yeah. I've never associated with Vic Queen Victoria, but presumably... <laughs> Yeah. It is, yeah. And this is a little bit of a rev revelation to me. I, I always assumed that everybody had the ability to make coronation chicken. I thought it was a, menu, uh, a meal for the masses at the time. Yeah. But not at all, no, really. chicken too expensive. Yeah. yeah.
gosh. Anyway, we're off for a quick break, uh, possibly to talk about Coronation Chicken and Victoria Sponge, but we will be back with Dave Fox and others in two minutes and some more news too. Cambridge 105 Radio. Monday evenings on Cambridge 105 Radio. Strummers and Dreamers with Les Ray. As there are so many different kinds of folk songs out there. Traditional ballads, shanties, work songs, songs by singer-songwriters of all kinds, my particular thing. You'll get live sessions and interviews by local performers and those from further afield, the big names on the scene and newly emerging independent artists. Lots of new music, some classics and something special just for you. Strummers and Dreamers online whenever you want it and Monday at 7 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Are you suffering from buffering? Find yourself screaming, not streaming? Or do you just lag behind? Then it's time to demand better broadband. City Fibre is building a brand new full fibre network across the UK, giving you access to broadband from a range of providers that's more reliable and up to 20 times faster than average. So you can stream, game and video call without interruption. Get connected to full fibre today. Choose your provider at cityfibre.com slash Cambridge 105. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk cklg accountants your partner in business your partner in life cambridge 105 radio and welcome back to flavor the guild of food writers awards were held recently a very prestigious event and one of the winners jenny jeffries uh, is a writer from south cambridgeshire and jenny told sue bailey about it earlier in the week i just recently won best self-published work for my second book for the love of the sea at the guild of food writers annual awards which was presented at the royal institution in london on wednesday last week and it's a very very privileged moment and i feel very humbled and very proud and happy to have have won the award which is just amazing i know it was fantastic i was at the guild of food writers awards as well and then i saw this lineup of three people i thought oh i know her and then you won fantastic yes i heard my name called out i couldn't quite believe it my husband john was sat next to me recording it on his phone so we've got a lifetime of memory of that recorded which is really lovely and it was a very special year celebrating 25 years of the guild of food writers where delia smith was also presented with the lifetime achievement award by jamie oliver so it's a very special evening not just for me but for everybody who was there the finalists and also the people who were just there to show some support and it's a very interesting guild also a very prestigious guild because you have to be a recognized food writer or food specialist food expert if you like 
to be able to be invited to be a member in the first place. That's right. So it's very prestigious and it's very humbling. And I applied about four months ago. So to win this award is just really, really fantastic. And I could not be more proud of the publishing team behind it at Meze Publishing. The editor, Katie Fisher, Paul Cocker, the designer, Emma Toogood, who does the PR, and Lizzie Capps, who does the marketing, and also Phil Turner, the director. So it's a fantastic team of people who I adore and work with and who are very, very lovely. And I gather there's some interesting news about another book in the pipeline. Is that so? That's right. An exclusive to you is I've got a new book, my third book, for The Love of the Land Part 2, which is due to be published on the 11th of July in a couple of weeks' time. And it's a continuation of the celebration of British farmers and their food. So it's a real celebration of British agriculture with another 40 fantastic farmers who contribute a recipe showcasing their produce with also heartfelt stories written by the farmers themselves about what British farming means to them. Again, published by Meze Publishing. Can you just tell me a little bit more about the food photography in your book? because it's beautiful photographs I gather I've just seen the cover and it looks amazing yeah it's a really beautiful book it's just come back from the printers actually and I had a flick through and it's so image rich and so vibrant and colourful and really illustrates the beautiful British countryside and the food that they produce and Meze Publishing Commission food photographers all over the UK to visit these farms to take photos of the food and also of the families behind the food and Paul Gregory took the photo of the cover of the book as well as lots of other images inside and it's just really really beautiful and unfortunately I wasn't able to visit most of the farms from the first two books due to Covid and lockdown so I was really really surprised and very happy to visit some of the farms this time around for this book and visit the farmers themselves and to witness the actual process of the whole photography which was really interesting and very enjoyable. How did you find the different people to put into the book? Were they through a sort of informal network or people recommended to you? How did you come across them? So good question. A little bit of everything. There are some people that I just researched through social media, which I think is a great source for good and real positive connection and engagement when it's treated with respect. So I found a lot of people through there and through websites and people who've won certain awards. Eventually word got out about the sequel that I was doing the book and people started asking me to be in it, which was incredibly flattering. How many farmers were included in the book? So there are 40 farmers, including Jimmy Doherty, who wrote the foreword to the book. Now, he's a farmer himself and a television presenter, and he's also the youngest president of the Rare Breeze Association, so it was fantastic to get his voice in there, not just with the foreword, but also his recipe showcasing his produce and also, briefly, what British farming means to him. He's a lovely guy. I met him when I was doing some work on Food Unwrapped and he's charming. Yeah, he's absolutely delightful and really privileged to have him on board. Of course, you have a farming background yourself, don't you? I do. I don't come from a farming background, but I was married into farming. Um, my husband, my arable farming husband, John, runs the 750-acre arable farm in South Cambridgeshire in a little village called Little Gransden. And we grow winter wheat, spring barley, linseed and beans and it's a very busy farm we live on the private airfield on little grandston so a lot of farm 
farms tend to be quite isolated, but there's always a buzz of life around the farm, either from the pilots, the guests, the farming people, the labourers, and myself and my two young daughters, Heidi and Florence. So it's very busy and really lovely and a very vibrant place to live, and I wouldn't change it for the world. That's lovely. And of course, you understand the issues to do with farming. And of course, interviewing and meeting the other farmers and other producers, were they mainly locally based or all over East Anglia or the UK? It's quite predominantly in East Anglia, but they are based all over the UK, including Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England. So there's a fair representation of the agricultural industry from all over the UK. And it's a real celebration of the hard work and the passion that goes into just producing a bowl of cereal or a loaf of bread or your dairy products or your beef and lamb. And there's lots of delicious recipes in the book as well. But there's a real banging the drum for British agriculture and to encourage the public to buy local, to buy seasonal, to buy sustainably and above all to buy British. Absolutely. And I think we're realising with the cost of food and the cost of transport and all these issues that are happening at the moment in the UK, we really need to celebrate our agricultural heritage, if you like, and make sure it goes on further. Absolutely. It cannot be more at a better time and more important time to really support the British food producers, not just the farmers, but the fishermen and women all over the UK. With the increased prices of food, feed, fertiliser, fuel, it's a really interesting but a really challenging time for everybody. Just to all your listeners at home with the cost of living crisis, people are going to have to make some really difficult decisions along the way, especially when the days and the nights start drawing in and we approach winter. It's going to be more difficult for a lot of people, but especially for the agricultural and fishing industries. Just tell me a little bit more about some of the recipes that the people that you spoke to and worked with have chosen. Do they span everything from sort of sweet, savoury breads? Yeah, so a lot of the recipes showcase the produce that the farmers produce themselves and we wanted to reach a bigger, wider audience this time. So there's some bigger, well-known names in there, such as Guy Singh Watson of Badderford Farm of Riverford Organic Farmers and also his wife, Geet Singh Watson, M. Who runs the Bull Inn in Totnes? So they contributed wild garlic tart soleil, um, which is a beautiful sort of seasonal recipe, which has just gone out of season now, actually. But there's also Marion Regan, who's the farmer at Hugh Low Farms Limited, who contributed a beautiful, delicious recipe called Alison's After School Strawberry Flan. And her farm is actually the main supplier of strawberries to Wimbledon. And that's a lovely, very summery, beautiful, delicious, straightforward recipe. And if I can make it. Believe you me, anybody can. Oh, I love strawberries, so that sounds really, really good. Would you say there's a particular favourite of yours, or are they all really rather delicious? They are all rather delicious, but there are a couple of recipes that do spring to mind. Is the cover of the book. is this beautiful quite regal sort of beetroot chocolate cake contributed by Farrington's Mellow Yellow, which is the first UK seed to bottle rapeseed. And it's a delicious recipe. It's very straightforward and it's just delightful and it features on the cover of the book and I thought that would be a lovely representation of some of the ingredients that the farmers produce. So I will be supporting Yellow Wellies which is part of the Farm Safety Foundation by donating them 10% of my net profits to the charity from the sales of the book For the Love of the Land too. So I'm really proud of that. It's something close to my heart and I think it's very important that they spread awareness about health and safety on the farms and also raising awareness for mental health awareness in agriculture.
as well. I like the name Yellow Wellies. It's something to stay in the brain, isn't it? <laughs> Anything else planned for this summer apart from your book launch? Apart from the book launch, it's just to get through harvest, which I think, I believe, because of the really sort of hot drought that we had and then a little bit of rain, it's come a little bit early this year. So we're looking to harvest possibly on the day of the book launch. So we'll have to wait and see what happens and just wish everybody luck and everyone up and down the country who are going to start harvesting and hope it's a successful one for everybody. I would totally agree. And Jenny Jeffries there, and congratulations to her on winning such a prestigious award. Yeah, it is. It's extraordinarily good, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm talking about things which are extraordinarily good. It's jam-making season. Mm. Uh, so let's get some extraordinarily good ideas for making a different sort of strawberry jam from local chef Rosie Sykes. With strawberries, the things that I think are really, really nice are pink peppercorns, fig leaves, lemon verbena, so all of those are, well, I mean, obviously pink peppercorns you can get anytime, but the other two are, you know, they're, they're sprouting beautifully at the moment. So it's the perfect time to, to use either of those. And what I would do with them, with the fig leaves or with the lemon verbena, is put sort of whole branches or whole big leaves in while I'm cooking the jam so that I can just lift them out. And I lift them out while the jam's still really hot so that all of the extra jam drips off them and then discard them. And another really helpful tip is that once you've made the jam um, and it's at setting point, to make sure your fruit distributes nicely, it's worth leaving the jam for about 40 minutes, depending on the heat outside or the heat of the day or the heat of your kitchen, for about 40 minutes so that the jam is starting, is quite, is cooling and, um, starting to set and then you should get the fruit more evenly distributed because it's always a bit sad when you either get it all at the top or all at the bottom. <laughs> uh, many thanks to Rosie Sykes for those yummy ideas. <laughs> And there's the music signalling time for news from social media. Yes, not a lot of uh, newsworthy activity on social media this morning, but Cambridge wine merchants have a bin end sale with discounts of between 12 and 23%. Uh, so they include Rieslings, Port, Champagne, Rioja, Bordeaux and many others actually. And they are available online only. Um, Finn Boys have a rare space for their tasting menu tonight, that's Saturday. Call Richard to secure a, ta a, a space uh, on Cambridge 354045. And that's it. We do have plenty more news, though, and we shall begin with Corinne Payet of Gourmandise. She has a lot of classes coming up. The details are on the Gourmandise website and they include, on the 16th of July, a sweet and savoury pastry masterclass. Sweet includes the delicious Arendine. Contact Corinne via her website or social media. And on the subject of classes, Tristan Welch of Parker's Tavern has some very simple, quick and easy cooking tips on Instagram. Uh, look for Chef Tristan Welch. They include ways of avoiding food waste, so ideas like braised broccoli stalks with herb and lemon, an idea of using spare sourdough starter, 
strawberry top martinis and asparagus soup made from the parts of the stalk you normally break off and throw away and making vegetable stock from vegetable peelings. They're all very good, simple ideas, very watchable and very money-saving too. Mm. Cam's Cuisine has taken over the Royal Oak in Barrington, also, Cotto, lately of East Road, and the Gonville Hotel, and much missed, is to re-emerge at the Bourne Golf Club. But eating there will not require men to wear a blazer, we understand. Market House in Market Square is having a soft opening right now. The terrace and the kiosk on the ground floor opened during the week, the restaurant from yesterday, Friday, and the wine bar will be open from the 15th of July. The meeting room and the food lab will be open from the 18th of July. And the Willingham Craft Beer Festival is happening next week. This community-organised event has its beers and drinks sorted by Ivan Seth, who you heard earlier of the new Radigan pub in King Street, and Chris from the Bank Micropub in Willingham. So Ivan and Chris are friends. And here is Ivan now. Hi, this is Ivan Seth from the new Radigan and also Jolligan Beer. We're part of the Willingham Beer Festival, which is just in the village of Willingham outside of Cambridge. It kicks off on Thursday the 7th and there's loads of awesome beer. There's loads of popular Cambridge food trucks. There's a marquee, but there should also be some awesome sunshine. <laughs> the uh, last Willingham Beer Festival raised £6,000 for local causes. There'll be 30 casks, 18 or more kegs, 10 or more ciders, plus wines and gins. And like Ivan said, a lineup of local food trucks including Pimp My Fish, Steak and Honour, Buffalo Joe's, Azahar's Spanish Food and Nana Jude's Hot Salt Beef Bagels. Festival entry is £3 on the door and full information is online at willingham.beer. OK, on to our final feature now. And when Alan was talking to Dave Fox of Trumpington Allotments about its forthcoming 75th anniversary celebration, he also asked about other local allotment history. And with the help of local historians like Howard Slatter, they dug up quite a lot. 75 years, that's shortly after the end of the Second World War, so were the allotments established because of food shortages after the war? Well, I think the blockades and rationing made it absolutely obvious that housing should be provided along with land for the residents to grow food. So the first proposals for what became the council estate here, that's the Foster Road, Paget Road estate for those who know the area, um, those were first drawn up in 1941 but of course it was just a paper exercise then because of because of the war and the estate was f eventually constructed from 1946 to 1947 and the allotment land was acquired at the same time in the, in the same block of in the same block of land by the corporation of the city of cambridge so it was, it was social housing plus allotments for the working classes which is explicitly stated in the title transfer <laughs> so there, were other allotments in cambridge established around about that time then for the same reason? Oh, some were well established by then, yes. Um, I'm, I've had a look around the history of some of the other sites, so we know that Burnside allotments at the, at the south end of, east end of Mill Road were established in the 1930s. Uh, rock allotments, that's in the Queen Edith's ward, so the Glebe Holbrook site and the, uh, the one on Baldock Way, they were established well, the society was established in 1916, but the earliest in what is now the city of Cambridge, I think, is Chesterton Allotment Society. Um, so their little history that they drew up for their 100th anniversary <laughs> um, 
records that they had a meeting in 1909 when an allotment society was formed and petitioned the local authority for allotments. They didn't actually get any land from the uh, from the council, and eventually they, uh, after trying for two years, they eventually made a direct arrangement with the landowner and. In a few years, they were leasing many hundreds of acres of land. Their, their history is fascinating. I mean, they had a machine gun emplacement on, on their site, um, but plot holders were advised that this would only inconvenience them in the case of an invasion. <laughs> so so there's, some, there's some good tidbits um, from the societies where the minutes records have, have survived. Um, so yeah, if anyone wants to delve into the history, ours uh, are, are available if you want to take a closer, a closer look. Howard has created an interactive plots map of the Foster Road site in Trumpington. Uh, it's on the local history group website and you can click on a plot and find out the tenants who've been there in the past. So if you know that you had a relative, an ancestor, who had an allotment here, you can find out which plot they had. Oh, really? It might, of course, be one that's been built on since. <laughs> we still we still retain about fifty of the uh, of the original plots. Yeah, but building on them makes me. I do wonder sometimes whether allotments are under threat from developers. I mean, does the Trumpington Allotment Society get letters asking if, if you'd like to sell off some land for housing? Mm, not in my time. Of course, we we don't own the land. The land's owned by Cambridge City Council, and it is statutory allotment land, meaning it was acquired for allotment purpose, and therefore there'd be a uh, There'd be, an, as well as local planning, there'd be an additional statutory step to overcome if someone wanted to change change use, and it would be over our dead bodies because we've got a hundred plot holders here and, and all their friends and who would who would defend <laughs> who would defend the site um, by making all the arguments about why we're why we're so why we're so valuable, especially now that Trumpington's such a such a developed area. However, uh, we shouldn't take our eye off the ball. We should always be vigilant. I mean, there was uh, proposals by. Peterhouse College to develop their site, which is at Dawes Lane, Blacklands, um, in, 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 Cherry, in Cherry Hinton. It's, it, it, it borders onto um, Snaky Path, if, if, for, the, for those who know who know that area, and that was refused by the City Council, and they still haven't managed to get that site included in their um, in the housing envelope in the in the local in the local plan. Um, though, of course, the the local plan, what's now going to be called the Greater Cambridge Local Plan, is constantly under revision. Uh, the second draft is due out later this year after they've taken on board the comments on the first draft and I've seen that there have been some new proposals for sites put in there that is landowners and developers proposing that sites in and around Cambridge be developed for housing maybe some of maybe there's some allotment sites in there I, I haven't I haven't looked right. because the uh, emails only just come only just come round so always be on the be on the lookout and be ready to defend allotments because it's, it's only well, just over 20 years since we were building on building on allotments. The Newmarket Road site was lost completely, the Nuffield Road site was shrunk and moved, and of course we lost three quarters of an acre to Cambridge United Football Club. So it's you know it's not that long ago that they were they were building on building on allotments. Hopefully their value is now so widely recognised and the usage is, as my recent survey shows, almost at 100 percent um, And all the Cambridge's allotments are designated as protected open space that's a, that's a defined category within the greater cambridge local plan so hopefully we're, we're at the end of building on allotments and we're at the start of creating new sites which has occurred in trumpington clay farm trumpington meadows and two smaller sites yes well that's that's good news thanks to dave fox and the 75th anniversary celebrations of trumpington allotments are on from noon on the 9th of july if you miss that 
earlier. Uh, open to all and there is no charge. And there's Green Onion signalling the start of our job section. And Scott's All Day in Mill Road is looking for a chef for brunch and pizzas. Including tips, the pay is £15.50 per hour. Pizza experience is desirable, but not essential, as training can be given. There are five shifts per week, usually two doubles and three shorter shifts. Barbarella in Chesterton is looking for a full-time barista. You'll have Sundays and Mondays off. Send your CV to hellobabs at barbarellacafe.co.uk. Chefs at varying levels are needed at Parker's Tavern in Regent Street, including chefs de partie, junior sous chefs and commie chefs. Chefs at varying levels are also needed at Mercado Central in Green Street. Head chefs are needed at Gourmet Burger Kitchen in Regent Street, the Rupert Brook in Grantchester and the Red Lion also in Grantchester. A senior pizza chef is needed at Aromi. And chefs are needed at Wagamama in St Andrew Street, Byron in Bridge Street, Anglia Ruskin University in East Road and the Petersfield in Sturton Street. Sous chefs are needed at Newnham College, Cote in Bridge Street, at the Petersfield and the Cambridge Brewhouse in King Street. Details of both of those are on the City Pub's website. The Ivy in Trinity Street, Smokeworks in Station Road and at the Olive Grove in Regent Street. A junior sous chef is needed at Gonville and Keys College. And finally, chefs de partie are needed at King's College, Trinity College, Market House in Market Square, the Rupert Brook in Grantchester, and a senior chef de partie pastry is needed at Downing College. And that takes us to the end of our programme for today. Don't forget we are here on Alternate Saturdays at 12 noon, repeated on Mondays at 6pm and Thursdays at 2pm, and will also be available via podcast early next week. Coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio at 1pm today is The Gadget Guide, but that's all from us. We'll be back on the 16th of July with lots more food and drink news, jobs and features. But until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. goodbye.